Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Dan with Resilient REI, and Dan has a number of links. I'm going to have him make sure to have your consolidated link in the show notes. So head over to reimastermind.net for that, or go into the show notes on your podcasting app, and I'll make that clickable so you can find it right away. We found each other on Twitter. That was It's amazing how fast the Twitter account has been growing as of late, and there's a real estate mastermind going on Twitter all of a sudden. I don't know about you, Dan, but that's what I've been finding out. Who knew that there are so many nice strangers on the internet? And Jack, thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. To your point, Twitter for real estate and just finance in general is outstanding and having a lot of fun interacting with individuals such as yourself and other pros. Yeah, it's great. It's like you throw out almost any question and there's typically somebody there ready and willing to answer. Let's start things off here, Dan. You're, first of all, Dan is starting a podcast called Resilient Real Estate. I'll make sure, like I said, to have that link in the show notes. And we share a lot of common interests on that front. But it, it's always great to kind of get a little background story, Dan. Like, how did you find your way into real estate investing? Yeah, I found real estate almost at the end of my rope, if you will. So I went to college and I was a big startup guy. I love the startup world. And I did a podcast on the Chicago startup scene. And I just saw how hard those people were working. And it, saw, it seemed like a lot of them were running in a hamster wheel. And I thought, maybe that's not for me. So then I went to the corporate route. Hey, I'll graduate college. I'll go ride the corporate ladder. And I was able to leverage a lot of the relationships that I had from doing that podcast to get to one of the premier startups in Chicago, they had just raised $550 million. Google Ventures, the now governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, were investors. And it really felt like you're getting in at the ground level of the next Facebook or Google. And I came in as a sales guy, started killing it. And then after about six months, the whole company was brought together. And the managers basically said, hey, the Wall Street Journal is going to be doing an article on us, but don't worry, it's all fake news. And by the way, don't talk to any reporters. And one of the old sales guys raised his hand and said, what does a reporter look like? And our manager just did not have any answers. So what ended up happening was the company essentially fell apart just due to fraudulent activity at the executive level of the company. Turns out that they had raised that $550 million fraudulent pretenses from the now governor of Illinois and a whole bunch of really powerful individuals. And so I got to see what I thought was a very stable company, right? As stable as a startup could be. Three baristas on staff, free lunches, whatever, however, like they had everything. And it just made me think I can't rely on a company or a corporation to keep my, to keep ensuring that I'll have a paycheck. And that kind of led me down the path to real estate. And that was the beginning of really a five-year process on learning about real estate, learning how to make enough money to where I could afford a rental property, learning how to budget to the point now where I've got four rental properties in Milwaukee that cash flow right around $2,000 a month. So a long story, that company falling apart was actually one of the best things that probably ever happened to me. 
Yeah, talking about a strange situation, going into a meeting like that and getting that type of news, that that had to have been a shock for everybody. It was, and they raised $550 million. It was a certified unicorn, and there were sales guys in there who are making $300,000, $400,000 a year. Just, and I was right out of college. I wasn't making anywhere near that. I was probably making $50,000 a year. But seeing those people that I really looked up to at that point, who were all of a sudden very concerned about how they're going to keep their own house, how they're going to keep their lifestyle. Thankfully, I wasn't at a point where I was, I was still living at home, so I wasn't under that much financial pressure. But it really opened my eyes to, I can't pretend that the Calvary is going to come and save me. I need to be self-sufficient to some degree. Did that kind of lead you to the naming of your podcast and your handle on Twitter, the resilient, you're trying to find a way to be resilient and turbulent times? Nobody has asked me about where that handle came from, Resilience REI. And oddly enough, I I didn't put two and two together. Maybe in the back of my mind, that's kind of what I was thinking about. But I was just more thinking about, I'm going to create a podcast, I'm going to create a Twitter account, and I'm going to make sure I do it so much so that I'm going to call it resilient, where I, if I quit, I'd feel so awful. And so that's maybe in the back of my mind, that's what I was thinking of, but at least not consciously. The, the first four rentals that you found then, you found them in, in Milwaukee. Do you, is that where you pretty much reside or is that out of state for you? No, I live in Chicago. I found a great property manager in Milwaukee. She's just an absolute rock star. Yeah, she's in my property manager. She's also my real estate agent, and she oversees the rehabs I do on these properties. Which, if you can find a professional like that, it's they're just like gold. And I've had a really good experience with her. It's interesting. Why did you pick Milwaukee? It's funny. I picked Milwaukee. I was with some friends from college, and one of I don't even real estate investing wasn't brought up, but someone just said, "Hey, I learned that you could buy houses in Milwaukee for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars." And growing up in Chicago, you couldn't get anything. I don't even think you could get a studio apartment in most parts of the city for under $200,000. So that got me thinking like, hey, maybe there's affordable housing up in Milwaukee. And one thing led to another. And then I ended up realizing that there are more duplexes in Milwaukee than in any other market, which is a fun little fact. And at a market level, the price to rent ratio is the best in the United States. So I found great pocket within the city and just really haven't looked back. So when you vet these out, is she bringing these deals directly to you? Or are you finding them on the MLS or the off-market deals? I've been finding them on the MLS. I've been It's a nice sweet spot. These are mainly C-plus class properties. So they're, it, the investor pool is not necessarily looking at the, this class. And at the same time, homeowners are typically want to be a little bit nicer. So it's like an underserved area, I would say, when it comes just to the rental, to the real estate demand. But that has been picking up. That has been slowing down just a little bit. There's been less properties in the market. So the four that I have bought have been off of the MLS, but I'm exploring different ways to pick, off, pick up properties off market. What are the returns you're seeing? Are you able to stick with the 1% rule? Are you finding it in that realm or how, do, how is it looking? So... If you just go off of the rent to the acquisition price, it beats the 1% rule by a mile. And that's mainly because I've been buying, I call them townhouse condos. They're a little bit of a unique property type where it's a townhouse, but it's a condominium area. So you still have a basement, first floor, second floor, but you're sharing two walls to the side of you. So there's an HOA 
So it's the purchase price to rent price. It, it's a little bit deceiving because there is an HOA. But at the same time, going back to properties that are a little bit mispriced because an investor, a lot of investors don't like dealing with HOAs for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at buying a house, do you want to buy one of these townhouses or do you want to spend just a little bit more to get yourself a, a regular single family house? So you're able, they kind of trade at a little bit of a discount when they do come up. There aren't a whole lot of them, but I've been really lucky and had a great experience with the ones that I've bought so far. And along the lines of the price to rent ratio, it lives like a single family house because no one's living above or below you. So they rent at the same price as a single family home. Okay. And then have you had any issues with the HOA or how have you found managing that relationship? I really haven't. One HOA doesn't have an auto bill, so I do have to mail a check every month for that HOA. So that's a little bit of an inconvenience. But as far as managing it, there hasn't really been any issues outside of just getting a letter that the tenant wasn't picking up after their dog. But if that keeps other investors out of that that asset class, I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. But before you we hit record, you even mentioned that you actually rent yourself. And that's actually a unique strategy too. What made you decide to be a renter versus a homeowner? I, I think the reason was because I got burned when I, right after the whole startup that I was at fell apart. I was like, hey, I'm going to go into this real estate thing and I'm going to learn it by buying my own property, right? Like my own primary place to live. And I wanted to live in a city and I really wanted a house hack, but I just couldn't make the numbers work. Making $50,000, $60,000 a year, you don't qualify for really enough to buy a full-fledged duplex or triplex in Chicago because those typically 600 at the very minimum. And at that point, you're probably doing a lot of work to them. So I just, I wasn't going to be able to afford it. So I was thinking maybe I can buy a two bedroom and then kind of room hack, get a roommate to help cover the mortgage. And even then it was a little bit of a stretch. I think I was approved up to like 180,000. And the only two bedrooms that were as turnkey as you possibly, probably as far as I was comfortable with, were in some pretty rough parts of the city. So I ended up just calling it quits and just said, I give up after probably six months, ended up buying a studio apartment. And that studio ended up costing me about $20,000 when it was all said and done. And after that, I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm getting such better returns buying rental properties. Why don't I just do that? Why don't I, instead of taking a whole bunch of money on a down payment for another house or a part or condo, why don't I just keep on buying rental properties? And that gives me the flexibility to move around the city. I've moved twice since I sold that studio. And also at the same time, I'm able to find places that are fairly affordable when it comes to apartments. If I was going to buy a $200,000 condo, my mortgage payment would probably be more than I'm paying right now and my former apartment. So it helps me with, with my fixed costs as well. It helps a lot with the predictability. Have you ever considered moving to another area of the country just to figure out that market and maybe expand outside of Wisconsin? I've kicked that idea around a little bit. So my W-2, what I do for work, I'm in sales and I've got a really good job. I kind of learned what's a good sales job versus a bad sales job. And my sales job does require me to do a lot of travel, but they also like to have people in the office. So it's kind of like... I've been burned by a couple bad employers and I finally found one that I really like and that's been good to me. 
both financially, culturally, do I really want to endanger that by by moving out to Wisconsin or Ohio? It just doesn't seem worth it at this point in my career. That makes a lot of sense. I was just it was going to lead me to the question whether you were going pushing your way to full-time real estate investing or if you did have a W2. I do. I think that the I will probably go full-time real estate investing in the next 5 or 6 years. Time is funny. Things just come up and you can be prepared as best as possible, but can't be prepared for everything. Like just curveballs happen. What are your short-term goals with Resilient? So Resilient REI was born out of me just being such a nerd when it comes to real estate investing and wanting to have a platform to talk with other real estate pros, individuals such as yourself, Jack. And I started it really as a Twitter handle. I was like, oh, okay, this is fun. I'm, I'm messaging with people and learning. And I thought, why don't I create an email newsletter where I profile real estate investors once a week, every Friday, and they fill out a Google Doc. I add an intro, an outro, a link to their Twitter account. And I was like, that's pretty fun. But I'm interacting with some really great investors. And I want to keep that relationship going. So then I launched a Tuesday newsletter where I have some of my best people I've profiled coming on and giving their tips and tricks on particular aspects within real estate, like landlording, wholesaling, short-term rental, burring. And then I was like, okay, that, that's pretty fun. I've got a good cadence. And then I thought, why don't I start a podcast? Like, why don't I just go full bore? And that's really, it's all about helping me network and learn more about real estate and take my understanding of the industry a little bit further and having other people learn as well. Right. A lot of people have come into real estate over the last couple of years. And I just think that you need to kind of like what Earl Nightingale once said, you become what you think about all day long. So if you think about real estate investing all day long through Twitter and podcasts and YouTube videos, you'll just do better deals. And what do you think is your long term? What's the end result here? Where are you shooting for? I'd like to have I'd like to do the podcast kind of full time in coordination with investing in real estate. One day it'd be great to be able to have a following where we could do where I could syndicate deals and help people who follow the podcast and the newsletter and the Twitter help them make money as well. But that's kind of like a term term vision. I I want to there's so much that I have to learn. I just I know I'm not there yet, so I don't want to go. I don't want to dive into the deep end just yet. When you're thinking about these goals and plans, what do you do in order to make those concrete? Are there is there any kind of mental exercises or habits that you've gotten into to to make sure to make it happen? I think it's mainly just run as fast as you can until your wife says that, hey, you need to slow down just a little bit. Like we we maybe need to be a little bit too conservative. Do we really need to buy this property like full leverage? Like maybe we should just take it kind of a step back. I joke, but my wife has been such a huge help with pursuing this dream of building a big portfolio and building a a podcast and a Twitter account. It's just a lot of fun. That's all I can think about, whether I make money with it or not. It's just really a passion for mine, of me, of mine, I should say. So does she share a lot of your interests when it comes to real estate investing or did that take some convincing? It was, it, it took a little bit of convincing. My wife actually grew up in Brazil and came here as an au pair. For in Brazil, the better your English is, the better job prospects you have. So her whole idea was I'll get a basically a graduate, graduate degree in English here and so she came here as no pair and was basically making a couple hundred bucks a week. 
So the idea of taking all of our money and then buying a rental property that would generate a couple hundred bucks a month was a little bit of a stretch. But it's, hey, there's so many benefits to this. It's basically like having a bunch of different piggy banks that our tenants put into that piggy bank, right? And so it helps us save money at the end of the day, as well as help us generate money through cash flow. And now she's like completely bought in and I wouldn't be living in an apartment if she wasn't bought in. If she was not bought in, she'd be like, hey, let's get a let's get a house. Let's get a house in the suburbs or let's buy a condo. But we're completely aligned at just trying to build as big of a portfolio as we can right now. Well, we still can before we have have kids and our priorities need to shift just a little bit. Now you got four rental properties under your belt and you've gone through the process a few times. What are, we have a lot of, it's like the 80-20 rule. I keep saying that most of the people that listen to podcasts such as ours, they're they're either starting in real estate investing or considering about making that jump. What are a few of those things that you wished you would have known before making that first move? I would, what's been, what's blown me away a little bit is when I'm underwriting properties, I try and be very conservative. And I always want to have the worst case scenario in mind, 15%, 10% for capital expenses, regardless of how new the property is, 5% allocated for vacancy, even though the market really is about two and a half, maybe 3%. So underwriting conservatively. And then once you start operating that rental property, typically the worst case scenario doesn't happen, right? Like it, it typically, you're not going to have a whole bunch of repairs every single month. You're going to have months where there's no capital expenditure, no vacancy, no repairs. And at that point, it's the cash flow is just incredible. It's so much better than you thought it would be. So I have been pleasantly surprised with the cash flow on some of these properties. Maybe that's just because I've underwritten so conservatively. One of the things that you just pointed out there that I actually wish more people would do is define those objectives and particularly what type of return you're expecting and stick to it. We have, especially at first, we have a tendency of justifying the purchase and then matching, just making the excuse to just take that initial action. I don't want people to get into analysis paralysis, but actually sitting down, treating it like a business and defining those goals is a huge step forward. 100%. And I think that what was beneficial for me especially was I sat down with the, my property manager. I've edited her when, you know, and really was like, this is the person I want to have on my team. And I put together this whole calculator and said, what am I missing in this calculator? The expenditures, the repairs, what are you seeing? You manage 500 properties. And she, off the bat, she's like, hey, you need to budget in that once every two years, we need to come and do a gutter like we need to take out the debris from the gutters. We like to do a landscaping where we just trim all the bushes, make the exterior of the property presentable. And I was like, okay, how much is that going to be? And then we divided it right then and there. It's got about $15 per month. So then I just put that in the calculator. I'm in speaking to some investors, it's just price minus the monthly fixed costs. And they'll just be like, I'll take if I have a new roof or that gutter replacement, whatever that case might be that comes up, I'll just pull it out of the cash flow. And you can, this is a bad way to underwrite deals because mm-hmm. it then help, gives you justification to buy deals that you shouldn't buy. So when I underwrite deals, it's the price minus the fixed costs and then minus setting aside money for capital expenditure, repair, vacancy, property management, obviously, that those 
the landscaping. And then at the end, it's like, what is the ROI once it's all accounted for? You mentioned vetting out the property manager. What type of questions did you ask when you to just make sure it was a good fit for you? So I had, we had a phone call together and right out the gate, she basically was like, okay, you've got this much saved. Like, how can we help you? How can, what, is there ways that we can unlock equity in your studio? Cause I had the studio at the time. Are there other ways that we can, you can help, you can get into the game quicker. And it was really impressive the way that her personal finance know-how and just hearing about her portfolio is what I wanted. Single family, small multifamily. It wasn't like self-storage or large multifamily. Working with about 100 investors. And so that, that gave me a lot of confidence. And then when I went out to meet her, we had maybe an hour and a half meeting at her office, which was a rental property that she had and then just converted it into a bungalow into an office and went through the calculator. And then she gave me a tour of her facilities where she had like $10,000 worth of smoke detectors. And she said that Home Depot or Lowe's had a great deal on the smoke detectors. So she bought all the smoke detectors that she could for the properties that she oversees. All, you know, thousands of dollars worth of paint, thousands of dollars worth of laminate flooring. I had a board with all the keys, neatly organized by addresses. And it's okay, this is a real business person and this person knows what they are doing. And as a new and new investor, gave me a lot of confidence. Like I'm in good company. Like this person obviously knows what they are doing. Yeah, that, that's particularly interesting. And it, it, frankly, the reason I ask so much regarding property managers is sometimes it's actually hard to find a good property manager where your interests are aligned. They might be investors themselves. And for example, and I've had that situation where they end up prioritizing their own, own rentals over yours. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I had a conversation on one of my early podcasts with Michael Albaum, and he hosts the Remote Real Estate Investing Podcast. And he talks about at one point he had, I think he was working with seven different property managers. And he just expressed the same thing. It's where are where are their loyalties? Is it to their own personal portfolio or is it to their property management business? So whenever I'm talking to, people, to new investors, it's you need to work with good business people. Now, they can be great investors and they should be good investors because they are a good business person, first and foremost. We've been talked over and over again that you're the sum of the five people you hang out with the most, but that goes definitely goes into the aspect of getting in a business relationship with people as well. You want like-minded businesses to be partner with. This isn't somebody that you're doing that's just providing a service with you. It's obvious based on what you've said so far that there's a true partnership there and that she's looking out for, for your interests. You really want that. 100%. And I think that's also important for people to constantly be verifying Right. We're in a business. It's We're not operating charities. So we need to constantly be evaluating and make sure that who we're working with is still has is still a good business person. We don't want a situation where people change. Their priorities may have shifted and, you know, that things are still running smoothly. It's a constant process of managing the manager. Just because you had a couple of good meetings and the first couple of months have been going well, doesn't mean that you should stop verifying, that you should stop managing. So to come full circle, based on that initial experience with that business that failed or there was some fraudulent activity associated with it, is there any aspect of real estate investing that you found you're a bit more cautious than you would have otherwise? 
Yeah, I would say, especially now, because the there's so much uncertainty in the market in general. We're recording this in early October. I would not want any adjustable rate loans. I want everything to be either in cash or long-term, long-term fixed rate. I would not be flipping. I would not be looking at getting into any luxury construction, new construction, anything like that. My day job is in construct is in the construction industry. It's on the advertising side. It's a media that covers the construction industry. So I do think that I've got some interesting optics on that front, but I would definitely not be doing anything like that, at least in th- at this point. I was going to ask you what you thought the regarding the economy. What are your expectations right now? I am the least qualified person to be asked that question. I don't know. I really don't know. So my my day job is in basically covers the construction industry and primarily the residential remodeling industry and they're forecasting a a decrease in activity about by about four percent on both residential remodeling and new construction so both four percent i don't know i think it could be worse i but at the same time it's everything's got to be everything in my portfolio has to be battened down it's a it's not a huge dozens and dozens or hundreds of properties but everything has to be under long-term fixed rate debt, and just keeping powder dry. I think that there might be some deals coming up and they might look good at a 8 or 9% interest rate and they'll look fantastic in three or four or five years at a 3% interest rate or a 4% interest rate. So that's kind of what I'm playing at. It's like, how can I get a property that is going to be 10%, will yield a 10% cash on cash return at a 8 or 9% interest rate? I can then refinance and it'll be 15 plus percent cash on cash later. We're definitely entering in a bear market where there's going to be some buying opportunities. We're on the cusp of it. As far as I'm concerned, we're not going to, we're not even at the point of it being at the bottom of this situation, but every single time we've had a recession of any kind, that's when millionaires are made. So I keep telling people to be ready for it. I'm such a I've, I'm such a nerd when it comes to real estate and hearing all the people who really started just buying up properties in like 2010, it really seems like there was so much wealth. And you look back at how you, you view how lucky they were, but at the same time, we could be in a very similar position in the next couple of years here. Hopefully not, right, when it comes to the broad macro economy. But if we play our cards right and if we're frugal going into it, we might be in a position to to grow our portfolios quite nicely. And what do they say luck is? preparation and action where they intersect or something like that. There's definitely going to be something that comes out of this. It's just, and I don't mean to drag this out a little bit more, but it's such an odd economy because yes, we have record inflation and we should be seeing certain other economic slowings, but we still have shortfalls when it comes to labor. So it's this weird paradigm going on right now. I don't really know what to make make of it. But yeah, and going back to construction's so crazy right now. There's I remember and I'm gonna get the numbers completely wrong, but there is a big development going on in Ohio where they're talking about for this development they were going to need X hundred plumbers or something. And if you look at the number of plumbers that were going to be needed on this big development compared to the number of plumbers in the entire state, that's geez, basically every plumber in the state of Ohio is going to need to work on this development. And it's just there's just not enough labor. There's just not enough skilled labor. And just remind everybody, it's Resilient REI. You can find that handle on a number of social networks, but I'm going to make sure to have that centralized link in the show notes 
But Dan, I have some rapid fire questions for you if you want to give those a try as we close this out. Sure, let's do it. So here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. You've all you've seen them in the late night programs promising to get rich quick or no money down or what have you. What's a real estate investing myth you'd like to bust tonight? Ooh, I'm going to be a little bit slow on this rapid fire, rapid fire, that you need a ton of money to do to enter, that you need to be buying properties all cash. Yeah. How's that? You one. can do it for 3.5% down if you can make it work. Yeah. If you can make it work. You're not allowed to say rich dad, poor dad, or think and grow rich. I added that second book just recently because I everybody seems to go by those at default. So what book would you recommend everybody checking out or what are you reading right now? I think that a good entry point for a lot of investors is One Rental at a Time by Michael Zuber. He also hosts the podcast, the YouTube and podcast by the same name. Really great story about how he was able to build his whole real estate portfolio out in Fresno, California. Like you said, one rental at a time. What is the biggest real estate investing mistake you've made so far? And what did you learn from it? It's not necessarily an investing decision because it was buying my studio as a primary. And I lost, like I said, 20 grand on that. And what I learned is that if you're going to buy a piece of property, you need to have the, the exit in mind. The reason why I lost so much money on it is because only young, dumb kids like me would buy a studio. There's not just a huge market for it compared to a single family or a one-bedroom condo where your market is significantly larger. And if you could go back into time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I would say to read... I would say one rental at a time did not come out. It came out fairly recently. I would say to go back and read Rich Dad, Poor Dad if I was in high school and just, I don't know, whisper in my ear like, hey, cash flowing rental properties, do some research, thank me later. Yeah. It's probably the best advice I could give my younger self. Dan, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here tonight? Jack, what do you think? What do you think the market's going to be? What do you think? How do you think we're going to be in 12 months from here? 12 months, I think we're going to have, we're going to be at the lowest. I think that's, okay. I expect that the interest rates are going to tick up even more. I wouldn't be surprised if we see double digits on the interest rates. And is that for a 30-year consumer loan? Yeah. I, I really think that we have the situation that the Fed always overcompensates. And we might eke out some growth in the GDP here in the this time around when they make the next announcements. But like I said, they always overcompensate. And I think what's going to happen is that the prices are going to start dropping in the real estate investing market as the interest rates continue to climb. And then they're going to have to do an about-face really quick. But that's just my opinion. Don't go buy, don't go start buying stuff based on what I'm saying here right now. But, but at the same time, don't go up. Yeah, don't, especially don't use short-term leverage. Don't use short-term leverage right now. Yeah, As, especially like you you mentioned earlier, the concept of making sure you, any kind of banking relationship, make sure it's fixed rates. And, and there's, and the nice part is that there's a bunch of different ways to help get financing too. It's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they cut you off at 10 loans. There are other options like non-QM um, that also offer 30-year. And there's also a couple of companies that offer 40-year fixed rate mortgages. So they're out there. They're just not yeah. cheap. I just got done talking to another fella earlier today, and I frankly haven't even run into the concept before, but there's even services out now that if you're living in a home and you want to turn it, that was your primary home and you want to keep it as a rental, 
they help you through that process, convert it to a rental property, get it off your balance sheet as a personal liability so you can then buy a next the next house while maintaining that as a rental. Oh, that's, an, that, that's an interesting concept. It was a really interesting concept. And frankly, I haven't run into any other company that does th- that specializes in that, specifically that. And then they'll manage it for you, of course, if you are within their state footprint. There, yeah, there you go. That's how they get that recur- reoccurring revenue. That's right. smart. So many people enter the real estate world by just renting out their former primary residence. So yeah, good for yeah. them. Yeah. Again, resilient REI. Make sure you head over to Twitter and follow because Dan is posting stuff on a very regular basis. There's a lot of great content there. And while you're there, find my Twitter page as well. There's a lot of interaction going on. And But Dan, really appreciate your time here tonight. Jack, thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.